So a few weeks ago, we kicked off the new year with a, a new series in First and Second Samuel, and the title we've given to this series is A Heart for God, because in this book, what we have is a number of stories, right? It's a historical book in one sense, but we have a number of stories which, which take us actually into the hearts and the minds of the various people in those stories. They take us beyond just what those people did, and they take us to the point of asking us to consider why they did those things. What was going on in their hearts? What were the basic fundamental underlying beliefs and fears and hopes that drove them and motivated to do the things that they did and make the decisions that they made. And as we look at these stories and at these people, we are forced also to look at ourselves and consider what's going on in our hearts. What are the things that drive us? What are the things going on inside of our hearts? And the goal of all of this, as we look at these stories, and I believe this is the purpose for which God gave us this book and these stories, is that we would, as we look at these people, also examine our own hearts and allow God to work on us, allow him to shape us and transform us into people who truly have a heart for God. The title of today's message is God in a Box. And um, the story, the reason is because this, the story in these chapters revolves around a box, a specific box, which is called the Ark of the Covenant. Probably you've heard of that if you, you know, watch Indiana Jones movies or, you know, if you read the Bible, I guess that's another way to find out about it. But as we'll see, the, the people in this story, they had this box, right? This big fancy box, but they had come to regard this box this Ark of the Covenant as their God in a box. God in a box. And there's, there's some irony in that, right? Because this is kind of a play on words, but it's very appropriate because the other part of this story, what's really going on here is that these people, not unlike us sometimes, they thought they had God all figured out. They thought that they could formulize God. They thought that they could, they could just figure out a formula and plug in their info and do these things, follow these steps, and that if they did those things, they would get what they wanted from God. If we do this, then God will have to do that. God in a box. Kind of like instant oatmeal, right? Just add water. Well, God in a box is kind of like just follow these five steps and God will do whatever you want him to do for you. But what we'll see in this story, and, and I believe it's true in your life as well, it's true in my life, is that the living God is not a force that we can manipulate, that we can harness and use for our own purposes, to fulfill our own aspirations. But he is a person. He is a being. He, he is one who has his own will, his own desires, and, and he has his own plans and purposes. And the living God doesn't exist to do your thing, and he doesn't exist to do my thing. Rather, he invites you and me to be part of his thing, what he's doing, his plans and purposes in the world. He invites us to be part of that, to come on board with that. The God of the Bible, the true and living God, I like to say that he's a free-range God, right? He won't be anybody's genie in a bottle, and he won't be anybody's God in a box. Here in this story, what we're going to see is three false assumptions that these people had about God and their circumstances. And as we look at this, I want you to also consider, are there any false assumptions that you have about God or about your circumstances or about those two of those together? So here were their false assumptions. Number one, the secret to success. Number two, the worst thing that could have ever happened. And number three, 
Oh, the humiliation. Okay, so the, success, the secret to success, the worst thing that could possibly happen, and the, the humiliation. These were their assumptions, but what we're going to see as we travel through this story is that the living God came in and blew all their assumptions out of the water. And as we study this, this story this morning, my prayer is that you too would come to see and know God as the true and living God and not as a God in a box. So, the secret to success, but not really. The secret to success, but not really. Here in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, we have been following the life of this remarkable young man named Samuel who was dedicated to the Lord in a very powerful and unique way even before he was conceived. And uh, as a child, Samuel was given to the Lord for the Lord's service. And as he grew up in the temple precincts, in the house of the Lord, Samuel grew up and was increasingly used by God. In our study last week, we saw how God used Samuel and God was raising Samuel up to be a prophet for the nation. One of the reasons why God was raising up Samuel at this time was because the spiritual leadership of Israel was corrupt. The priests were godless people who didn't know the Lord. They had desecrated the temple by doing immoral things and even illegal things right in the sanctuary. They had no reverence for God whatsoever. And because of the conduct of these people, God had sent a message to Eli, the high priest, who was also the father of the priests, and he said, I am going to remove you from the priesthood. You can't continue doing this. Eli had been turning a blind eye to what his sons, the priests, were doing, these evil, wicked things, and God says, this can't go on, Eli. You're complicit in this as well. I'm going to remove you. Eli's job was to protect the sanctity of worship in the temple, but he hadn't. And so God promised that he would bring judgment upon the house of Eli and remove them from being the priests and that God would, in place of them, raise up a new spiritual leader in Israel, someone who would do according to everything that was in his heart and in his mind. This was a dark time spiritually for the nation of Israel, but in the midst of that darkness, God was raising up a shining light. This young man, Samuel, who was growing up as a prophet of the Lord, and we see here in Verse 1 of chapter 4, it says that the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. The word of Samuel came to all of Israel. He was preaching and ministering the word of God to the whole nation. He was the pastor of the people. We read on from, from the end of verse 1. It says, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of the army in the field. At this time, Israel was battling a neighboring nation called the Philistines. So we have some family friends who live in, uh, in Los Angeles and uh, you know, once every couple of years we go and stay with them. So on a recent trip to Los Angeles, we were staying with these friends of ours. Now they're, uh, they're from the Philippines, right? The Filipinos. So, uh, you know, Nate, my son, he's six at the time he was four. Uh, and, you know, he'd been watching a lot of VeggieTales videos talking about the Philistines. So uh, you can see where I'm going with this, all right? So... <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, I, you know, we're staying at this house of our friends. Uh, you know, the, the mom there, her name is Lola. She's, you know, um, probably in her 60s. Good friends of ours. They're really good people to us. And uh, so, you know, Nate hears that 
Lola's speaking in a different language. He asked me, what language is she speaking? I said, she's speaking Tagalog. And he goes, what's Tagalog? I said, it's the language of the Phil- Philippines. And he goes, the Philistines? <laughs> and I said, no, the Philippines. And he goes, is Mama Lola a Philistine? The Philistines are the enemies of God. So I told him, yeah, she's a Philistine. And uh, he hasn't been very fond of her since then. <laughs> but the Philistines were originally from the island of Crete, right? Uh, and they had come by boat and they had settled the Mediterranean coast of what is now Israel. And at this point uh, in, in this story, the Philistines had established five cities up and down the coast of the Mediterranean there in the land of Canaan. Now, the Philistines were a militaristic people, and what that means is that doing war was kind of their thing, right? It was what they were into. From the time that their kids were little, they trained them for war. They trained them to be soldiers, and conquering other nations was what they did for fun because, you know, back in that day, there's a couple ways to get rich. One way is that you actually grow some things or make some things. The other way is that you just go and conquer everybody. They liked that idea a lot better. So the Philistines had come to the land of Canaan with that ambition, the ambition of establishing a great kingdom. And they intended to do that by conquering and subduing the people who were already in the land, which just so happened to be the people of Israel in this case. So here are the Israelites, and they have received this promise from God to their ancestors that this land is their inheritance, that God has plans for them here in this land. But now here come the Philistines who are trying to conquer them and invade their country and take their land. And the Israelites, by the way, are way outmatched by the Philistines, like not even close, right? This is not a fair fight. The Israelites don't have a proper army. They're not well organized. They're like farmers with rudimentary weapons, whereas the Philistines have the most sophisticated weapons and armor that are available. They have a formidable military. Basically, the Israelites don't stand a chance uh, against the Philistines. And we see that they go into this first battle, and the Israelites just get totally creamed, right? 4,000 people die in one day in hand-to-hand combat. The Israelites were simply outmatched by the Philistines. So verse 3, it said, we read this. When the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, so that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So they suffer this great defeat, and notice what they say. They say, God let us down. But then look what they say next. You know what we need to do? If God isn't going to come through for us, we need to devise a plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the Ark of the Covenant down here so that the Ark of the Covenant can save us from our enemies. Notice that, that word. So it can save us. So it can deliver us. Yes, the Ark of the Covenant, that is the secret to success. All we have to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us and success is guaranteed. We've got the winning formula. Read on in verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
So the Ark of the Covenant was basically a box or a chest made of acacia wood, which was plated with gold. And this uh, Ark of the Covenant, I got a picture here for you. It, it basically, its job was to hold the stone tablets uh, which the Ten Commandments were written on. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies, uh, which is the place where place in the temple where once a year, only once a year, on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, a priest would take the blood of a sacrifice and he would enter into the Holy of Holies and there on the mercy seat, which is the top where the two cherubim are of the Ark of the Covenant, he would make atonement before God for the sins of the nation. And this is really an amazing picture of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. This is a foreshadowing from the Old Testament of who Jesus would be and what he would do. That Jesus Christ would come when, and he would come by his blood. He would make atonement before God. Not just for the sins of the nation, but for the sins of the whole world. So the Ark of the Covenant, though, was not just special because of what was in it, but it was also very symbolic. It held great symbolic significance for the people of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized the throne of God. It symbolized the presence of God amongst the people of Israel. So the Israelites get this big idea. They send to Shiloh, which is where the, the temple, the tabernacle was in those days, and they, they tell, uh, here come Hophni and Phinehas, right? These are those wicked priests that we've been talking about for a couple weeks. They did evil things in the temple, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant there to the battlefield. Now think about what's going on here. The Israelites are looking to the Ark of the Covenant to be the ultimate good luck charm, right? If we take this into battle, we'll surely win. For them, this is no longer a, just a symbol of God's presence amongst them. This has become for them God in a box, the thing which will guarantee their success. And they even say, the Ark is going to save us. The Ark is going to deliver us. They're putting their hope in the Ark of God rather than the God of the Ark. Now let's see what happens if you continue with me from verse 5. When the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they had been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. There was a great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. They go into battle with this big plan, thinking that they've figured out the formula, the success, you know, the, the secret to success, this winning formula. And here's the formula. Number one, step one, bring the ark into the camp. Number two, step two, make a mighty shout to the Lord. And step three, have the priests carry the ark into the battle. Three easy steps for victory. Three simple steps that you can win every battle that you enter, right? Just follow this formula exactly. You will win every battle guaranteed now why would they think this what, what would give them this impression where do they get this idea from well they've gotten this idea from other stories of how God 
gave victory and deliverance to his people at other times. For example, and specifically, this is the one that, that I think is, is being looked to here. In the Battle of Jericho, this is exactly what happened, right? This is exactly what the people did and what actually God told them to do. He, step number one, have the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant to the camp. Make a loud shout, step two. And step three, um, take it into battle with you and you will be victorious. In Jericho, that's what they did. They followed those three steps, and guess what? They were victorious, even though they were terribly outnumbered. So here's these guys. They're thinking, hey, we're outnumbered too. And uh, they're looking back at what God did in Jericho, and they figure, if we can follow the same formula, then God will give us the same result, right? All we have to do is just plug these things in, and God will do the same thing for us as he did for them. God in a box, right? But that's not what happened. They followed the Jericho formula, the three easy steps to victory. Ark of the Covenant, shout to the Lord, priests in the battle. But they did not get the same result. Instead, they lost terribly. Terribly, terribly. 32,000 people, eight times as many as they had lost the first time around, right? They just got creamed. They thought success was guaranteed. They thought they had God in a box. They thought they had the winning formula, but they were wrong. Why? Well, at Jericho, don't forget, it was God who told them to do these things. Here against the Philistines, this isn't God's word to them. This is their way of trying to get what they want from God. This is their way of trying to follow a formula and thinking that their method was the secret to success. You know, so much of what's published in articles and, uh, and preached in sermons and published in books, you know, even if you go into, uh, if you look at Christian books, right, is this kind of thing. Methods and formulas to help you get what you want from God, right? How many of you have heard that sermon? How many of you have read that book? Three easy steps to victory, right? The formula for success. Five easy steps to get God to bless you financially. 30 days to happiness. 12 prayers to pray to help you reach your goals, right? Pray this prayer five times a day and you will never be sick again, guaranteed. Have you guys heard this stuff? Are you familiar with this? You want God to answer your prayers every time? Here's how, right? I'm going to give you three steps to follow. Or, or my personal favorite is, you get this one from time to time, I have discovered a little secret which was hidden in that part of the Bible, you know, the part that nobody reads, for thousands of years until I discovered it. And for three easy payments of 1995, I will share that secret with you. Order now, you know? Or, you know, come to this conference, right? And we will share with you the secret to this or the key to that, right? But you know what these things are? They're all trying to put the living God in a box. It's like treating God like a jack-in-the-box, right? Whenever you want something from him, just wind him up. And if you do it right, if you pray these words, if you follow these steps and you do it right, then he'll pop out for you. And the focus of all these methods and formulas is this. What do you want God to do for you? How can you make that happen? And how can you get God to do that for you, which you want him to do for you? In other words, follow me here. It's saying, let's figure out the things that we need to do in order to get God to give us what we want. That's exactly what these people were doing in this story. 
but it failed miserably. Because the true and living God is not a force, he's not a higher power that you can tap into and harness for your purposes. He is a being, he is a person with his own will and desires, his own plans and purposes. And the living God does not exist to do my thing. And he doesn't exist to do your thing, but he invites us to be part of his thing, his plans, his purposes, his work. He invites us to get on board with his program. You know, consumer religion is all about the question, how can I bring God into my story? Think about that. Consumer religion is asking the question, how can I bring God into my story? In other words, I've got my life, my story, what I'm doing. Now, how can I bring God into that? But the gospel is really different than that. The gospel is this, that God is inviting you into his story, into his story of redemption and what he's doing, his work in the world, to get on board and be part of his, his thing. And I think that's a really important message for us to hear because of the society that we live in. We live in really the most consumer-oriented individualistic society in the world. Uh, I don't think we're alone in being consumer-oriented or individualistic, but it certainly permeates our culture. Let me give you an example. In the 1950s, uh, the most popular magazine in America was a magazine called Life. Life magazine, right? So in the 1960s, Another magazine came out, which also became wildly popular. That magazine was called People. Okay, now think about this. People are part of life, but they're not all of life. Okay, so in the 1970s, there was another magazine that came out, right? And this magazine was called Us. Us magazine also became very popular. So now follow me here. Us is part of people, but it's not all of people, which is part of life but it's not all of life. Okay, in the 1980s, you get where I'm going with this. In the 1980s, another new magazine came out. This magazine was called Self. Okay, now Self is part of us, but it's not all of us, which is part of people, which is, but, but it's not all of people, and that's part of life, but it's not all of life. See where we're going? And in a recent cover story, Time Magazine labeled the current up-and-coming generation, the, what's also called the millennial generation, they gave them a label. They called them the me generation. So we have this trend towards this me-focused consumeristic culture, more and more so, and, uh, and that affects, the, we live in it, right? And it affects so much of how people approach relationships, whether it's friendships or whether it's marriage or whether it's a relationship with God. A consumer relationship is based on me needing something from you and you providing something for me and me giving you something in return, right? So for example, I have a consumer relationship with my grocer. I need food, I like food, he has food. And if I give him money, he will give me some of that food, right? Uh, and the whole basis of a consumer relationship is the transaction. Follow this. The whole basis of a consumer relationship is the transaction. But if I can get what I'm looking for somewhere else for cheaper, or if I feel like I can get something better somewhere else, for the same price or you know what I'm saying if I can get a better deal somewhere else then I'm gonna go there instead because the basis of our relationship is a transaction in a consumer relationship there is always an unspoken ultimatum that is hanging in the air 
And that unspoken ultimatum is this. If you don't keep providing me with what I want at the right price, then I'm going to leave and I'm going to find it somewhere else. And if I can find someone who will give me a better deal than you're giving me, well, then I'm going to leave you for them. And people bring this kind of consumer relationship, they bring this into, uh, you know, their marriage even, they bring it into dating relationships most certainly, and they bring it into, obviously, their relationship with God. But the kind of relationship that God calls us into is different than that. It's not a consumer relationship, it's a covenant relationship. You know, covenant is such an important word in the Bible, and really the best picture image we have here on earth of what a covenant relationship is and what it's meant to be is marriage especially as it's portrayed in the bible marriage is the best earthly picture we have of what a covenant relationship looks like in a covenant relationship you actually choose the person for who they are not just what they can do for you in the transaction in in a covenant relationship that unspoken threat of if you don't keep providing me with what I want at the right price, then I'm going to go somewhere else. In a covenant relationship, that is removed. And for that reason, covenant relationships are the most intimate kind of relationship that exists. Because when you take away that threat, that thing that's hanging in the air, that I will leave if I can get a better deal somewhere else, that removes a barrier to intimacy. That creates intimacy. Covenant relationship is always the most intimate relationship you can have, way more intimate than a consumer relationship because there isn't the constant threat that one party might leave if the other party isn't uh, feeling that they're getting what they want. That's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you, is a covenant relationship, a relationship in which God says, I choose you and I'm not going to leave you. I will not forsake you no matter how much of a bonehead you might be sometimes because if you enter into this covenant relationship with me, then I will be yours and you will be mine and there will be no more threat of if you don't keep providing what I want at the right price, then I'm out of here. But yet there are so many people who don't do that. There are so many people who, who still have a consumer relationship even within their marriage. You better keep it up because if you don't, I'm looking over your head at the next person, right? There are so many people who still have a consumer relationship with God. Just like the Israelites in this story, they say, God, if you're not going to give us what we want, then we'll look for it elsewhere. That was the mentality they had here. God let us down, so let's go look for what we want elsewhere. We'll look to the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, the Ark of the Covenant will save us. God in a box. But of course, that ended in tragedy. They thought they had found the secret to success. God in a box, a formula, which would get God to give them what they wanted. But that thinking was so backwards. It was so mistaken so misguided. Rather than getting God to give us what we want, our objective must be to find out what God wants and get on board with that. So the secret to success, but not really. Number two, the next assumption here is the worst thing that could have ever happened, but not really, right? The worst thing that could ever happen, but not really. Check out what happens in the aftermath of this defeat by the Philistines. Verse 11, also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled 
for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. Do you see what a big deal this was to these people? When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the men came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there was also a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law Phineas' wife was with child due to be delivered and when she heard the news of the ark of God was captured that her father-in-law and her husband were dead she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, you've borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. In one day, because they looked to the Ark of the Covenant as God in a box, they lost 30,000 lives, they lost their priests, they lost the high priest, and what they considered worst of all, they lost the Ark of the Covenant. To help us understand how devastating this was to them, we see this woman who was pregnant, and when she hears the news that the priests of Israel are dead, that the Ark of the Covenant's been captured by the Philistines, she's so shocked, she's so horrified, she's so disturbed by this news that it causes her to go into labor. And she gives birth to a child, and she names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. Bummer of a name, right? Well, uh, you see, losing the priests and the, the Ark of the Covenant, they considered this to be the worst thing that could ever possibly happen ever, right? This was unthinkable. It was like they were living a nightmare. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the presence of God amongst the people of Israel. And they had begun to think, though, of the Ark of the Covenant as more than just a symbol. They had begun, as we see, to think of it as God in a box, as God himself. So when they lost the ark, it wasn't just that they were upset that they lost this national treasure or an important religious symbol. They were devastated as if God himself had been captured and carried away into captivity. This was, for them, the worst thing that could ever happen. Or was it? It certainly felt like it was, but, but I think that you and I, with the perspective that we have, we can look at this story and say, well, no, actually, this was not the worst thing that could have ever happened to them. In fact, if you really look at it, what you'll see is that this was actually one of the best things that could have happened to them. They certainly didn't feel that way at the time, but we can see that now. Here's why. Before, uh, because Eli and his priests, remember we talked about how they were terrible spiritual leaders from Israel, and God had promised in chapters 2 and 3 that he was going to remove them from leadership. And he was going to instate a different man, Samuel, a man after God's own heart who would lead the people according to the heart and mind of God. So is this the worst thing that could have happened, that the house of Eli is gone from Israel? Well, no, not really. Actually, it's a, it's a good thing 
in the long run. In fact, it's one of the best things that could have happened because Eli and his sons were driving people away from God. People had stopped coming to the temple because of the corrupt priests. And now here comes Samuel. He's going to step into place, and he is going to turn the hearts of the people back to God. He's going to lead the people according to God's truth and God's will for them. Is this the worst thing that could have happened to them, to lose the Ark of the Covenant, right? To have it captured and carried away? Well, no, actually it's not. And, and in fact, it's, it's one of the best things that could have happened because here's what happened, is that this event broke them of their idolatry. It broke them of looking to the Ark of the Covenant as their Savior rather than looking to God as their Savior. They, they had to bring their attention back to the living God who wasn't confined to boxes or places, but who was everywhere, omnipresent. How about you? I wonder, have there ever been times in your life when you have said, this is the worst thing that could ever happen? Everything's falling apart. I don't know if I can carry on. I I've had those moments, maybe on smaller scales, but, but how these people felt, this is how they felt in that story. This lady was so upset and so distressed that she went into contractions and labor. And then she named her baby Ichabod, which means pretty much everything's bad and it will never be good again ever, right? But we know better than that, don't we? We can actually see that although they felt, they certainly felt at that moment that the world was falling apart, that the worst things that could ever happen were happening. We see now that God brought so much good out of this that all of the good eclipsed all of the pain of that moment. And I want you to know that for your life as well. I want you to remember that when you're feeling that this is the worst thing that could ever happen. Because the promise of God is that he's sovereign and he's providential and he works things together, all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And in your situation, however bad it might seem, if you will put yourself in God's hands, he can bring so much good out of that worst thing that could ever happen to you. So much so that it will eclipse the pain of that moment. And thirdly, lastly, the last assumption, oh, the humiliation, but not really. Follow with me in chapter five. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. So Ashdod was one of those five Philistine cities on the Mediterranean coast. And so the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple next to their main deity, which is called Dagon. Now Dagon um, was a statue which was half man and half fish. And this was the god that they worshipped. The Philistines believed that this box that they had captured was actually the God of Israel. Not just a religious symbol, but God of Israel himself. So their view is that they have defeated the God of Israel by the power of their God, Dagon. And now they're bringing Israel's God and humiliating him by putting him on display as a trophy of Dagon there in the temple of Dagon. And certainly this would have been shocking, this would have been horrifying, this would have been humiliating to the people of Israel that the Philistines would portray their God as being greater than the God of Israel. But check out what happens in verse 3. When the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. 
the, the city of Ashdod wakes up and there's their God, this statue, Dagon, fallen on his face, essentially prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. What a picture, right? But what do these people do when their God has fallen? Well, they prop him back up again. I guess that's what you do with an idol, right? What a sad picture when you have to pick your God up and prop him up again because he can't stand on his own. Verse 4, And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left. The next day they come in, there's Dagon, he's lying on the ground again, they had already propped him up, but this time his head is broken off and his hands are broken off. You know, if, if you walk into the temple of your God and, and you find him lying face down with no hand and no head, then wouldn't you think that something was a little bit fishy? This is a fish, the fish God. Uh, I'll explain it to some of you guys later. Uh, the, the Israelites were worried that... Uh, their God was going to be humiliated by the Philistines. But in reality, just the opposite was happening. God was taking care of his own reputation. Do you know that God can do that? He really can take care of his own reputation. He really can worry about his own glory. And so here's God. They're worried that he's being humiliated, but no. God is showing his glory to the Philistines. Much rather than being humiliated, God is showing the Philistines that their God, Dagon, is no God at all because Dagon was something they created, something they had to prop up, and now something that they're going to have to glue together. Dagon is not the God who created them. And let's read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is harsh towards us and towards Dagon, our God. Their God is not being nice to our God. Therefore they sent and gathered themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God of Israel away. Now it was after they carried it away that the hand of the Lord was heavy against that city with a great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. You know, just kind of going through all their cities. They've only got five. So the Ekronites cried out and said, they've brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Interesting story. So the Israelites, they're worried that their God is going to be humiliated by the Philistines. Just the opposite happens, though. God shows himself to be greater than the gods of the Philistines. And what's interesting is that after seeing Dagon destroyed on the floor, understanding that the God of Israel is the true and living God, what do the Philistines do? They still choose to glue Dagon back together and prop him up again rather than repenting and crying out to the true and living God so that they could be healed. Instead of turning to God, they run from God. They try to avoid him. They try to get away from him. But look, that did not make their problem go away. In fact, the problem just continued to spread. I wonder if there are some of us 
today who are like that as well. Maybe there are some of you who, who are here today and you've been avoiding God. You've been running from God in some place or in some way because you know that he's calling you to do something. He, you know that he's calling you to change something in your life. But it's easier to not deal with it. It's easier to just get rid of him, to get away and avoid him. The way for them to be healed would have been for them to come to God and repent. And God would have healed them and he would have embraced them and made them part of his covenant people. But they didn't do that. Here in this section, we see that the, per, the people of Israel had three false assumptions, just to wrap it up. Three false assumptions about their circumstances. Number one, they thought that God in a box was the secret to success. Number two, they thought that losing the ark and the priests was the worst thing that could ever happen. And number three, they thought that God was going to be humiliated amongst the Philistines. But each of these assumptions was completely wrong. Do you think that maybe sometimes you have wrong assumptions about God or about your circumstances that you don't perhaps see it as clearly as it really is or how it's really going to go down? I would wager to say that we all do. At the root of their false assumptions was this view of God that had become too small, that had become limited, and this view of their circumstances that had become just blown up. God was actually much bigger and much greater and much grander than they believed him to be. And my prayer for us is that we would not reduce our view of the true and living God to merely a God in a box who we think we've got all figured out because we don't. And that is a good thing. And I'll finish with these words from Ephesians chapter 3. It says this, Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, more abundantly than all that we can ask or even imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that your glory, Lord, that your grandeur, is, is greater than we can even know or imagine. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't fall into that trap of the Israelites of having a diminished view of who you are, of thinking of you as just God in a box. And Lord, I pray that you would help us who struggle with trying to formulize everything, who try to, I'll do these three steps and God will do this for me. Lord, help us to not think in that manner anymore. Lord, help us to think, how can I get involved in God's story? How can I get involved? What is God doing? How can I be part of that? How can I adjust to that? Lord, thank you that you've invited us into your story. And Lord, as we, as we now take communion, that's exactly what we remember. Lord, that you've invited us into this story of redemption, of redeeming the world, of forgiving sins, of wiping it away, and of, and of glorification and bringing us to that place of glory in heaven. Lord, thank you that we can be part of your story and what you're doing. I pray now that, Lord, as we take communion, as we remember Jesus Christ and his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, Lord, would you, would you cleanse us anew this morning? Would you let us again, Lord, dedicate ourselves to you once again? We pray that in Jesus' name as we worship. Amen.